Amen. Well, we are in the book of Acts this morning. We've been in the book of Acts since we started the new year, 2020, and we're in Acts chapter 4. So the book of Acts is written by a man named Luke. If you've not been here with us, uh, Luke wrote another book in the New Testament called Luke. <laughs> it's like, why didn't they just call it Luke part two? Um, well, it's the book of Acts. So Luke is the gospel of Jesus, written by Luke, as he was not an eyewitness, but he was a historian. He was a well-educated person, and so he took the task on of kind of writing down uh, the account of what happened in Jesus' life. So he witnessed, he interviewed the witnesses, and he went around and gathered as much of the stories as he could. And so we have that as a as a um, as a record for us. And then he wrote another book called Acts which is the sequel. So if Luke is about what Jesus did, Acts is about what happened after Jesus left and the church goes forward and the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the believers. So we have, we, we have this kind of part one and then the sequel. So that's where we're at. We're in the book of Acts. It chronicles the story of the early church movement as they wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and then they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out the mission that Jesus called them to. See, the movement that started in the book of Acts was and is God's plan for reaching every people, tribe, and tongue. The movement that we're talking about, this church, a movement that we're still a part of today, this is God's plan for reaching the world. So when we join in the church family, we are, whether we like it or not, whether we want the responsibility or not, we are a part of this plan what kind of participant are we? Well, that's, that's something that only you and the Holy Spirit can really decide. But we're a part of the same movement, this movement that began on the day of Pentecost. It really began way, way, way before that. It began in, as God unfolded the plan for salvation from the very beginning. What makes studying the book of Acts so challenging is that it reminds us again and again of what we are called to what's at stake, what a faithful life looks like. When we study the life of the early church, when we look at the lives of faithful people, both in history and in our day and age, there's meant to be encouragement that comes from it, but there's also a challenge to us that comes from it because it holds us accountable. There's an accountability when we read the story of this movement that started that says, hey, are you living up to your end? Are you keeping it going? And when we see missionaries and other people who've really fully invested their life into the kingdom of God, it's encouraging, right? But it's also challenging. When we have people in our lives that are fully devoted to trusting Jesus and living their life, sometimes it can be uncomfortable when we're kind of on the fence. You ever had any of those people in your life that are just kind of always like making you feel like you're not fully devoted? <laughs> And hopefully they're not trying to shame you or guilt you, and I'm, not, I'm definitely not trying to do that. But there is a conviction and an accountability that comes from that when other people are walking alongside of you, and they're giving, and they're trusting, and they're serving, and, they're, and they understand that this mission that we're called to is the most important thing in this life. And that's what united the early church, said that they had all things in common, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, that what that really meant was they had the important things in common. They weren't all the same size. They didn't all have the same personality. They didn't come from the same background, but they had this one purpose, the mission of God. That was what united them, and they had the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we, when we read the book of Acts, I don't know what it's done for you, you as you walk out each week, but for me, it's just like, man, do we see that in my, do I see that in my life? Do we see that in our church? And obviously, we live in a completely different context than they did. And so we talk about the context that it was written in, and how does this relate to us? See, the book of Acts is meant to be challenging to us. And I, I shouldn't, and I, and I probably don't need to apologize for that. That's just my personality, though. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want to apologize for that. See, how do we read this as more than just a history book? How do we read this and understand its context and understand the challenge that it's meant for us today as we live the gospel out, the story of Jesus, the resurrection power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, as we live it out here in 2020? 
in Centralia, Chehalis, wherever you are. That's what we're talking about. See, our culture and our context are different, but the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit are still just as important today as they ever have been. I think about a story like the one we're looking at in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 as we're kind of coming to the end of this story. I think about this man who was born lame. He was healed. What God was doing, and, and do we see these kinds of things happening in our lives? And how many of you have seen somebody healed of that kind of thing? How many of you have seen a miracle? See, sometimes when we read the story, we think, oh, God's not working like that because I've never seen that. And I, ask, I have to ask myself, am I seeing God's hand move? And I, our context is different today, right? When this man was born, when he, he was born lame, we don't know what his deformity was. They, hadn't, they didn't have technology. They didn't have medical ability to... to I mean, nowadays... If, if somebody's born this way, and it's still really difficult, it's still a major challenge, but they have wheelchairs, and they have, I mean, they, you could, this kid would grow up possibly learning to read and to write, possibly, to communicate, to move. They even have ways that people who can't fully function in their, in their physical body, they can drive. It's incredible. I have a friend who is paralyzed from the chest down, so he can still move his arms, but not full function, and he's now able to drive. And I saw a video of him doing it as he has to kind of crank the steering wheel this way. And the pedals, he can't reach, but they've got all this different ways that he can. So it's, it's a lot different today, isn't it? It's a lot different. I think about even my own imperities. My vision, you guys may not know this, is terrible. If I was born at the time of Jesus, I would have been a blind man. You know how many times I pray to ask God for my vision to be healed? on a regular basis, almost never. You know why? Because I have contact lenses. I got glasses at age eight. They help me see. So we live, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> I don't know which one of you said that. They said nerd. See, okay, now for those of you who don't understand this, let me give some clarity to that because that's not a very appropriate comment. But. I have a bunch of family over here. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> I will have a talk to you after this. <laughs> but we live in a different day. So much of physical healing and, and things like that, we, we pray for it and then we go to the doctor and we have all kinds of different technologies. Do we see those things as miracles? We, I mean, oftentimes we completely take them for granted. But if somebody from Jesus' day were to be dropped into our time, they would just see miracles all over the place. They'd just be like, whoa! But we grow up with it. Like when I put my glasses on, do you remember that experience, those of you who have bad vision? Do you remember what it was like? Can you imagine in Jesus' day if somebody got to put a pair of glasses on and they look, all of a sudden there's leaves on the trees and those things weren't move, that are moving around, they're not trees, they're people. And actually, when you read the gospel, like, there's actually a story of a man who's healed, his, his vision is healed, and he realizes, he sees. I'm like, I understand that guy. So we live in a different context, and miracles still happen all around us. Are we aware of it? Do we see it? Are we telling the same story? Here's a miracle for you. Waking up in the morning in Washington and going to sleep in a completely other part of the world. We can travel across the world in a day. It's incredible. So we have to translate the gospel and the power of God to a different kind of culture and context today. People are not as impressed by special effects as they once were because people see them all the time. You can go to a theater where the chair will rumble, right? So what we see in the gospel, or what we see in the book of Acts is God pours out his spirit and there's smoke and there's fire and there's all these really crazy things that in that day would have just been like, whoa. Today, like, that would be like, oh, it's a concert, right? 
That's like a lame fog machine. What is going on? So what we see in our day, what I believe is that the miracle that people need to see is a transformed life. It's a transformed life. And the gospel still has the power to do that. Oftentimes we get discouraged because we may not see a miracle like this man being healed. But have we seen lives transformed? So I ask you this. Have you seen a miracle? I hope your hand's up now. (laughs) Have you seen someone's life transformed? Have you seen your own heart transformed by the power of God? Don't let it just slip by unaware. Okay? We have seen miracles. And we see God moving. We need to tell the story. So here we are, the book of Acts, chapter 4. What's happened is this man gets healed. He, got, he does a big happy dance. He's running around. Everybody who's there that day sees it. They hear it. They know this man because he's been there for 40 years. They've been walking by this guy begging. And now he's up dancing around, praising God. And he's like clinging to Peter and John because he's never walked before. And so he's just... I mean, I remember what it was like putting my glasses on. I don't know what it would have felt like to all of a sudden be able to walk. Incredible. And so everybody around is going, what is happening? And Peter does what Peter does. He stands up and he preaches a sermon and he talks about Jesus, the fact that he rose from the dead. He doesn't go on and on about, hey, we'll heal you. Come on up, line up. No, he starts talking about the gospel and he preaches the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And people are going, wow. And then there's a bunch of other people, the ones that wanted Jesus killed. They're going, whoa, what's going on here? We got to stop this. So they bring him in. They question him. And Peter's really, he's powered, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he's really bold now, whereas before he was like denying that he knew Jesus. Now he's bold and he says, we can't stop. And no matter what you do, can't touch this. If you weren't here last week, that was the sermon. No matter what you do to us, you can't stop it. And I think they know it. Because they just tried to, they just killed Jesus. And now here he is, popped up again. And now there's thousands of people that are proclaiming his name. But what's amazing is that they're not just proclaiming it. They're demonstrating it. Their lives are transformed. Thousands of people's lives are transformed. See, there's a difference between knowing the truth and living the truth. So knowing the truth is not the same as living in the light of that truth. And our culture, they, they hear what we call truth, but are they seeing lives that demonstrate it? Are they seeing lives of people who are trying to live according to that truth? Not, a, not according to something that's convenient, but the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, the fact that he rose again. We're going to talk more about that. So Peter and John get arrested for talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And they're told never to speak of it again. And then they're let go. Because the religious leaders know we can't, if we do what we did to Jesus to these guys, it's not going to help. So they let them go. That's where we pick up the story. Acts 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." So Peter and John are released. They go to their friends and they tell them what happened. And the first thing they do is they pray. And it's always interesting when we have prayers that are recorded. I think it's, there's, there's a lesson that's, that's taught in through these prayers. You notice what they don't do? They don't do what probably every one of us on an individual level would do first. That'd be, God, save me from this. 
God, remove these people from power. God, take this circumstance from me. That would be an individual prayer. But what they do is something different. It's, it's important for us to take note of that. They don't pray not one time for their circumstance to change. And yet they pray with confidence. They pray with confidence. What happens when we pray for our circumstances to change and they don't change the way we want them to change? What happens? I don't know about you, but it begins to rob my confidence from trusting God. When I pray for my circumstances to change, I'm, 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 and, I, and that's it, <laughs> I'm putting myself in a position to where I feel like God is not coming through on my behalf. That's not what happens here. They come together and they pray. And they pray with confidence. How can we, church, today pray with confidence? There are people who will tell you, if you, you, just whatever you ask for, God will do it. And can I tell you that there's truth in that? <laughs> because we have every answer in Jesus. The, the issue isn't that God is not going to grant us that prayer. The issue is timing. <laughs> so we have to understand the timing of things. People want to promise and, and reach for a promise that is already accomplished for us, and they want to they, they make God bring it now. And we have to trust. That's why the resurrection power of Jesus is at the heart of everything they believed because they know I'm going to die, but he rose from the dead, and I'm going to be with him. And at that point, every pain I've suffered, every injustice I've suffered will be righted. That's the heart of the, of the Christian's prayer to God. Not, Lord, make my life more comfortable. Lord, let me trust you. So they pray. They pray with confidence. And here's how we can do that. See, we gain confidence in prayer by remembering who God is. <laughs> First thing they do when they pray, sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth, maker of the seas and everything in them. It's, it's a reminder. And it seems so simple. And sometimes we say the words without really thinking about them. God is very, very big, and we are very limited. When we forget that, when we don't force our brains to engage with the fact that God created us. He wired us the way that he wired us. He's been in charge from the beginning, and he sees what's happening, and he is not surprised by it, but he has a plan. When we forget who God is, we will not pray correctly. And if we have confidence, it's not in him. We have to trust and remember who God is. And the second part of that is we gain confidence in prayer by remembering that God has a plan and it is good, <laughs> right? And some of you are thinking it right now. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good, right? God has a plan and they outline it. Have you ever noticed when we see prayers recorded like this? Like, aren't they just telling God a bunch of stuff that God did? Like, what is the purpose of that? Like, let me just pray the entire gospel, <laughs> From the beginning, God, you set out this plan. You told Adam and Eve that you, would, that you would bruise the heel and crush the head and then that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And you could just pray through the entire lineup of prophecy after prophecy about Jesus. And why is it that the apostles and, the, and this early church pray this way? It's not to tell God what he's done. Because <laughs> remember who God is. He's very, very, very big and we're very limited. God knows. What's happening as they remind, as they recite, God, you spoke through our father David by the power of the Holy Spirit. You outlined the fact that your anointed one would be, would be betrayed by the Gentiles, by the, uh, like, by the religious leaders, even by the people of Israel. You foresaw it. You knew. And you knew that Jesus would die. God has this plan. It brings confidence as we remember that. Something that just 
really is stunning to me is one of the verses in this prayer. It's stunning to me today because of the way that we view our world. And this is what it says, Acts 4.28. And tell me if this stood out to you when you read it. Acts 4.28 says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't that stunning? Whose hand? Whose hand was it? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was it Herod? Whose hand and whose plan? God's. When Jesus did what he did, nobody did that to him. He volunteered. If he had wanted to, do it another way. He could have, but he chose the way of grace. He chose the way of taking responsibility for our brokenness and, and healing us through faith in him. But whose hand is it? It's God's hand. In my life, in my circumstances, I can get bogged down. When I come together with others whose lives have been set on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm reminded that it ain't about me. It's not about my comfort. We all understand that, but sometimes we just want a break. <laughs> Anybody? Sometimes we just want a break. I think about Jesus' life with his disciples as he's talking to them about the prophecies that are going to be fulfilled, the things that were said generations, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, about his suffering and his death. And Jesus is telling the, the disciples this, and Peter's like, no, no, don't, don't do that. Like, take us to power. Don't go the other way. Jesus, is, he actually says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's tempting. That's what the devil tempted Jesus with, was comfort. Take the easy path. Sometimes in our lives, we, we are tempted by that. We have to understand, and, and this is very counterintuitive, but we need the reminder that our comfort isn't always what is best. Can you just say that with me? My comfort isn't always what's best. Can you say that? My comfort isn't always what's best. Does it kind of feel weird to say that? <laughs> it doesn't mean that we don't pray when we're in discomfort, <laughs> okay? But when we come together with the family of God, we have a recognition that it's not about our comfort. See, in God's plan, this is something we have to remember in this, in God's plan, Losing isn't always losing, and winning isn't always winning. Do you guys get that? This is very counterintuitive, especially in our culture today. Sometimes we have to lose to win. But when we truly trust God, it is worth it. Am I just saying hollow words, or do we recognize that? Do we let it sink in? When we truly trust God, even losing is worth it. It's, it's explicit in the Gospels. Jesus says it word for word. Whatever you lose for me and my sake, you will gain. And he promises crazy promises a hundred times, a hundred times more. But not necessarily right now the way you want it, <laughs> but in the life to come. That's why the resurrection is such good news. Losing isn't always losing. See, we gain confidence in prayer when we remember that God has a plan, and it's much, much bigger than what we can understand. We need others in our lives to help us remember that fact in faith, or else our faith can become frail and lack power. And sometimes it does. I've had times in my life where my faith has been frail and weak, and I know in this room, even the people that have been the most faithful have had moments where it's felt that way. A struggle comes to us. A challenge comes to us that we can't see past. 
We can look all around us, and at times it looks like, man, everybody else is kind of like smooth sailing. And the enemy brings these things to our minds, and he helps us to think lies and go, they've got it easier. And Jesus is there saying, you follow me. When we look all around us, what I, what I want you to see is I want you to see a room full of people who've been there. Okay? And unfortunately, we don't do a great job of telling our stories. Because I know that people walk into this room and they go, I'm lonely. No one else in here is lonely. People walk into this room and go, I'm broken. I'm, I'm a sinner and no one else in here is. And we look at people's lives in the exterior But I want you to hear today, you're not alone. You know who else can identify with us? Is Jesus. He understands. That's what's so beautiful about Jesus. He came and he lived. He suffered the most unjust suffering in the entire history of the world. And he understands. We need to push through. And I'm not just like a motivational speaker on you here. <laughs> You're going to need other people. Because I was thinking about this. I'm like, sometimes we have to borrow faith. <laughs> and it doesn't, I'm not talking about faking it. I'm talking about in genuine distress, going to brothers and sisters and saying, I feel like I'm falling apart. I don't know how to get through this season. And to have someone else say, hang in there. Let, let's pray. And then pray for them. We have to have that. But we gain confidence in prayer when we remember that God has a plan and it's good. So even if it feels like you're losing today, (laughs) hang in there. Because losing isn't always losing. Look at the cross. It's the ultimate example. It looks from the world's perspective like Jesus is losing the game. And whose hand was it? It's it's God's hand. And he he won. (laughs) He won. He won. We remind ourselves he has a plan and he's good. We gain confidence in prayer when we ask for boldness and strength to do what he has clearly called us to do. (laughs) Did you catch that? What are they asking for in this prayer? God, give us boldness. Give us the strength to go and proclaim the gospel. Did they come up with that on their own? No. That's what we've been talking about through the entire book of Acts. Jesus said, Power will come on you. You'll be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit has come to them to go and to tell the world about Jesus and his resurrection. So they come to this prayer time and they remember who God is. They remember that he has a plan and that it's good. They've seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. They know that losing doesn't mean losing. And then they pray for boldness and strength to do what he has clearly called them to do. You know what? We oftentimes pray for God to bless our business. We oftentimes pray for God to bless our family. And those prayers are not wrong. But there's a different kind of prayer that we as a church need to pray. And that is that God would give us the strength and boldness to proclaim the gospel first. That's what it's about. When we do that, we unite. Because we're not divided by all those other things. When we do that, we get our priorities straight. And we recognize, number one, is the story and the mission of Jesus that we are called and tasked with sharing. And the other things that come, we should give thanks for. When God blesses your business and you have an unexpected good year, you know what? You know what's really cool? Christians with money to give. If you think of it another way, if you think, cool, I just got a lot of money. Awesome. That's not, that's not the way we're to look at it. That's a difficult statement. <laughs> it's, it's difficult, okay? We are to first think kingdom-minded. 
when your family is doing great, we thank God, we praise God. Today we have little Lachlan with us. He's four days old. (laughs) We thank God for Lachlan, and we praise him. And you know what prayer at my house is for my kids every single day? Is that they would grow up and they would understand that God loves them and that they would share that with people. It's a simple prayer. My family can't just be for me to have a good life, but I want them to be a part of the story. And I ultimately can't do that. So we have to trust God. This church, this early church, as they are pushing into this new era, they're hitting, they're going to hit resistance. They've just encountered resistance for the first time as they've proclaimed the gospel and they've been arrested. But they are on the verge of full-on persecution. They are on the verge of forces coming against them, against the truth of Jesus' resurrection. They are coming, they are coming to a point, we're not that many chapters away from the first martyr who would give up his life to proclaim the gospel, losing in order to win. They had a different kind of challenge than we have. And I'm not saying we don't have our own forms of persecution and challenge. But I think in our culture today, one of our bigger problems is comfort. Comfort. And why is comfort such an easy thing for the enemy of God to use? It's... It's actually Newton's law, his first law. Do you guys know what it is? I know this row right here knows. <laughs> They're engineers. <laughs> Newton's first law of motion starts with an object at rest stays at rest. Do you see how the enemy of God could use that? Man, if he could get the church sitting back, if he could get Christians comfortable to where they're not moving anymore, Whew, it's easy work. Oh, man, that would be like, that would be number one strategy for me. So get them get comfortable. The other part of that law goes on to say, but an object in motion stays in motion unless acted upon by an external force. So once a body is moving, it's going to keep moving until it's acted upon by an external force. And so what we see in our world today is we see God moving the church. He's giving them a big shove. He's saying, get out there and tell the story. And then we see an external force, the enemy of God, Satan. He's pushing back. He's using all his tools to try and stop it. And if he can get it stopped and he can get Christians who have good theology but don't do anything for the mission of God, they'll just sit back. It's a, good, it's a win for the enemy. And so as a, as a church in America, as Christians, and, and for me personally, who enjoys my comfort very much, I have three Ottomans in my living room. I, I enjoy comfort. For me personally, I have to ask God to move me, to continue to move me, that I might not just sit back It's so crazy in this story what happens at they, as they finish this prayer. What happens at the end of this prayer is so cool. So they finish praying, and this is what it said, Acts 4, 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Isn't that so cool? As we're talking about objects at rest and objects in motion. God literally shakes them. (laughs) The room is shaken. They're filled again with the power of the Holy Spirit. And doesn't it seem like every week we're reading about them being filled? Like, again, (laughs) they're filled again. They're filled again. Peter's filled. They're filled again. We need that. You need to be reminded that, hey, just because it happened one time doesn't mean that it's, you're still filled. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you've lost the Holy Spirit. He's still there. But are you actively engaged? Are you saying, God, fill me with boldness. Fill me with this power. Or are you saying, I got salvation. Good. All right. 
Do we need God to shake our building? I don't know that it would survive. (laughs) But can you imagine what it had been like? The room shook. It's a reminder. God's power is huge. It's huge. And they've seen it. You can't stop it. No external force can stop it. Not when the power of the Holy Spirit has really taken root in your life. And so they were shaken. It would leave an impression. Verse 44, 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common. The church is unified. Remember, there's thousands of them at this point. There's thousands of them. And they've come to understand that winning isn't winning and losing isn't losing in the kingdom of God. They've come to to understand that the mission of God is primary, that the family of God is now their family. And people are coming and they're being saved. And that means that some of them are having to leave behind the security of family and the security of money and the security of, of all the things that they had before. And they're coming in need. They've never been in need before, and now they're in need. And the family of God is saying, we got you. We got you. And they're being forced to rely on one another. It's a picture of what church community should look like. It's a picture of what's mine is yours. They lived that way. Can I tell you, more than checks and dollars is a mindset here. It's a heart. Recognition that the stuff that I have isn't for me and mine. It's for God. Do you know that there are poor people who don't get that and there are rich people who don't get that? It's probably a bigger deal when rich people don't get it. (laughs) But when we get a hold of the gospel, when it is literally, and and the power of the Holy Spirit has filled us and empowered us, we grasp a hold of this, that the stuff that I have is not mine. It's not for me. It's for the kingdom. And it changes the way that people live. So they were unified. And I, I love this season of the church. Like, wouldn't it be amazing to get back to that? And I know, I know because you guys are, you live in this world. You instantly start thinking, there's no way we could do that today. People would take advantage of it. And there's all kinds of things that go through our minds. Can I challenge you? Don't just think about the practicalities of this, but understand the heart of God in this. That when we are moved by the power of God and the Holy Spirit, our heart is now one with those who have joined the family. Don't don't let money be a problem. Don't let it. There's unity in the church. And as the church begins to grow, we're going to see that that gets challenged. It's a natural thing. But can we grasp a hold of that? So here's what it goes on in verse 33. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Love that. Great grace. <laughs> it's great grace. As they tell the story, and they're, they're giving their testimony of what? The resurrection. Because this is at the heart of the movement. This is at the heart of how somebody who's got a lot of resources can come and say, hey, you guys can have this. It's because they got a hold of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. This life isn't all that there is. In fact, this life, in comparison to eternity, is nothing. 
And they're going to be a part of it. They're going to be a part of seeing people's lives transformed. And so at the heart of the gospel is the resurrection. It, it is the answer of how losing can be winning. And when we get that, it changes the way that we live. And it's demonstrated. It's demonstrated. It's not just because they all became really great communists. <laughs> Their life was changed. They believed that Jesus rose from the dead. It's incredible. Do we believe that? We do. Good. Whew. Acts 4, 34 and 30, through 37 says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called the, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, which is an awesome name, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And this story, we're not going to be able to get into all this, but next week's passage, if you'll read ahead, is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is one I can't wait to hear. <laughs> but this is a story of Barnabas. This is a story of a man, a Levite. Do we know what the tr- who the Levites were? The Levites are the family of the priests. The Levites, they were held in high honor. So for him to become a Christian, he's putting all that aside. And he's coming in this field that he has. He's selling it. And he's saying all that, all the inheritance, all the things that I've gained through my birth family, I'm putting aside to join the family of God. And he gives it all. It doesn't say that they were all commanded to do that. They did it. That's why Ananias and Sapphira are going to get in trouble is because they're saying they're doing this, but they're not actually doing it, so they're lying. Anyway, but can I tell you something? This story is not about money. (laughs) We've talked a little bit about money. This story is not about money. This is Luke's way of letting us know that money stopped being a goal and instead became a tool of grace. In our culture today, even inside the church, money still has, is, has still become a goal. And we need to understand that in the kingdom of God, money and resources and gifts and talents are not meant to be the goal, but they're tools of grace. Do you know that God loves when rich people get this? Rich Christians can do a lot of good. And there are a lot of people with a lot of resources that are giving freely. It's not saying we have to all be poor. It's simply saying, do you see your wealth, your resources, your talents, your gifts as tools of grace? Do you get that? I'm reminded as, as, I, as I was reading this, and it just struck me. Barnabas went and sold a field. It reminded me of a story that Jesus told in Matthew 13. He tells a parable. He loved to tell parables. And he tells a parable about a field. And this is what he says in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Do you know that these two stories are not about fields? They're not about fields. It's not about the field that Barnabas sold, and it's not about the field that they went and bought. It's an it's understanding of the heart of God and the kingdom of God. That once you get it, the things you had no longer have a power on you. They become tools. The parable, the man finds a treasure, and he buries it. He takes care of it, and then he goes and sells so he can be a part of it, so he can buy it. When we get the kingdom and we see it, no matter what we have, we will get rid of it in order to be a part of the family of God, to take care of it. But what's most striking to me as I was reading that parable is the motivation for this. Did you catch it? The motivation 
for the man who sold his field, or who sold all he had to buy the field. What was the motivation? If you could throw that scripture back up there. It says, and then in his joy, he sold all he had. See, oftentimes we get kind of this heaviness. We start talking about resources. But when you understand this and you read this, what is it talking about? Joy. The man was filled with joy. Jesus doesn't just want us to come and be good missionaries for him. Right? We look at the, old, we look at the New Testament church. We can sit here and go, man, I got a lot of work to do. I need to be better. I need to listen to God more. I need to, I need to pray harder. I need to give more. <laughs> if, we, if we walk away with that feeling of heaviness, we don't get it. Not fully. There is a responsibility to it. But I love the way that Jesus talked about this. It says that it was joy. <laughs> For those who really catch a hold of the resurrected power of Jesus, who are truly moved by the power of the Holy Spirit, life is not marked with some sense of duty. It is joy. It's joy. Oftentimes we get, I don't know about you guys, but it's like, you just get bogged down. There's just so much to do. Start reading about human trafficking and you just go, oh my goodness. I can't do it all. I can't touch it all. I can't save everybody. And we come back to the, the motivation behind it is joy. When we move into the kingdom of God and we live with this mission, it's going to change our lives with joy. This morning as we close the gathering, I feel like joy is a good place to leave us. <laughs> because the reality is the gospel isn't just a mission. It isn't just a responsibility. The gospel for us is first received as joy. I love the psalm David wrote, Psalm 51. He talks about restore to me the joy of salvation. So we live our lives and we, as Christians for very long, and these guys are still really early on. As we live our lives as Christians, it gets difficult at times to Tap into that joy to be reminded of why is it that you come here every Sunday morning? Certainly not to hear <laughs> some guy yell at you. <laughs> I mean, even reading the Word of God, it's not just about that. There should be great joy in our hearts. That's why we sing. Some of you are like, I'm not a singer. Scripture says, make a joyful noise. We sing, and I'm not, I, I can't tell you what's in your heart, but that's why we do it. We sing because as a church family, we can unite our voices together, saying the same words at the same time. So I read a passage like this, and it says they all prayed. I'm like, did they have a script? Or is this just, they wrote down just this kind of general idea of the prayer? This is how we can pray the same prayers together. This is how we can re be reminded of the same joy that we all share is when we sing together. So this morning as we close the gathering, we're going to come forward and receive communion. Jesus said, do this to remember me. Do this and remember that I died for you. Do this and remember I rose again. So we come and we, rece we receive communion. And we're going to sing and we're going to give praise and we're going to be joyful and we are a very uh, North American church <laughs> you don't see a lot of dancing and I'm not asking you to dance <laughs> but inwardly <laughs> does your spirit <laughs> do you find joy in the words that are sung because think about it people think about what we're talking about here you know, it can be very, it's just, 
can just be very easy to come and hear words, even to hear music and to sing words and not let it engage with our spirit as we recognize what Jesus has done for us. And so I'm going to ask you as you come forward and receive communion that you allow it to get to that spot. That you allow that joy to reignite. become a motivator as we go forward into our world, into our community, into our families, that our lives would be marked by joy. And it doesn't mean that you all have to smile like Pastor Kyle. (laughs) But that we would have joy. (laughs) That we live like people who've been set free. That we would live like people who know that one day we are going to spend eternity with God, our Father, our Maker, the Creator of heaven and earth, the one who set all good things in place, that He has made a way for that to be restored, and we get to be participants in that. That's why we sing. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you so much for the gospel. Jesus, that you came and you lived your life, you proclaimed these things and you taught and you showed us what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And we live in a broken world in which it it, it taints everything and it makes it difficult for us sometimes even to see your goodness. And so I pray this morning for those who are in this place this morning and they, they can theologically say, God, you, are, you have a plan and you're good, but on, on a very practical, personal level, they're, they're burned out, they're tapped out, their faith is frail and weak. You don't despise us when we're low. So I pray that this morning as this word has been shared, that you would breathe new life into the brokenhearted this morning. Those who are struggling, they made it here this morning. They may look like they got it together, but inwardly they're struggling. I pray that your spirit would reignite joy. That even if it feels like we're losing, we know because of what you've done, the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. So I pray that that reality would sink in and that as we process that through communion and praise, that you would would send us out of here lighter than we felt in a long time that we wouldn't be burdened by a mission, but that we would be filled with joy. So we thank you for it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.